You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. I'm Eli Steenlidge, and with me, as usual, is... Jeremy Holiday, And we have a special guest returning, Colin Burnett, friend of the show. How are you doing today, Colin? Doing very well. Happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming back on. You joined us for our uh, quite popular Wonder Woman episode. Yeah. Um, which we got a gra- uh, some great comments on. So. Yeah. Oh, happy to hear it. We're, gl- we're glad to have you back. Uh, so we are talking about Star Wars, episode 8. The Last Jedi. Thank you. And uh, this is long overdue. We're getting to this later than we want, but I think it's given us time to look at sort of the landscape of reactions. Yeah. And, uh, See it three times. Yeah. Jeremy saw it three times. And so we have a little more time to think about it and see what other people are saying as well, which is nice. Uh, before we kind of jump into talking about things, uh, Colin, just briefly, what... What is sort of your relationship to Star Wars or any sort of history you have with the, uh, with the franchise? Uh, the, my experience is, is primarily through the movies, um, okay. although recently that's changed as I've uh, been studying um, some franchises pretty closely and trying to cast a wide net. Uh, we could probably get into it a little bit, but I'm currently reading uh, quite a few of the current Marvel run of Star Wars comics, okay. uh, but don't, I don't know anything about the novels. Hmm. Uh, I know only, you know, the the basic, uh, should I just say, summary of some of the events that go on in the novels and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But um, also, I mean, I'm a big fan of the animated series. I think, in fact, the animated series are where it's at these days. But mm. uh, so you that's like, how I approach it. Like a, a Clone Wars and Rebels. Clone Wars and Rebels. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are great, great, are absolutely great. amazing products. Um, the uh, but uh, by and large, I mean, I saw giving away my age, I guess, but uh, saw the um, Empire Strikes Back at a very early age and mm-hmm. fell in love immediately mm-hmm. uh, and got into, well, should we just also mention the toys? Yes. Yeah. And uh, off to the races from there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the toys are a great way to kind of own the experience, I think, especially as kids and, well, yeah, and it also, possibly I th- as grown-ups. Yeah. yeah, I think it highlights one of the things that I think – lots of people like about the series is like all the design mm-hmm. i mean like it's i mean from the the death star to the stormtroopers to the ships i mean there's just so many physical things that mm-hmm. were designed for it that yeah. are interesting i yeah. mean they're all unique and stuff fun yeah. to play with i think i've mentioned to jeremy before uh with these new films coming out they're releasing these uh art of the design books um that go with them which are really beautifully made and i like I think almost get as much enjoyment out of sort of reading through those books after I see the movies and seeing all the ideas and concepts behind it and what maybe they didn't do and what they did do um, is really fascinating to me uh, on that geeky production level. Yeah. And, well, and- gonna, there'll be tons of geek to I guess, but um, to add to that, I don't know if any of you have been following the uh, relatively new Netflix series, Toys That Made Us. No. Uh, no. There's a really great episode on the Star Wars toys. I didn't even realize how much I was into it. I'd almost forgotten. (laughs) 
all of the products that they put out, um, thinking back to which friends had what, uh, and you would oh, yeah, you know, yeah. lug, lug everything over to their houses in order to have a grand battle. Um, <laughs> But the influence of those toys was major, and in fact, I, I didn't, at a certain point, didn't distinguish between the, the Star Wars toys and G.I. Joe, mm. which I then learned in the G.I. Joe episode was part of the point of oh. making their figures the same size hmm. as the Star Wars uh, figures. Interesting. Yeah, and as a side note, famously, George Lucas held on to the merchandising rights, which made him the rich man that he is. Hmm. Um, after those original films, which everybody thought was stupid at the time. Um, Cool. Uh, Let's kind of dig into the film here a little bit. And with The Last Jedi, I think we're seeing more of like what Disney may be doing to expand the Star Wars universe. Uh, I'm not sure that there's ever been such a case of a popular franchise that has shifted from the original creator to kind of new management around it with so much money and influence kind of backing it. So on this episode, I wanted to discuss this possible kind of new direction Star Wars is taking with Ryan Johnson's involvement with this film, Um, especially since it's been announced that he is the new creative force behind a non-Skywalker trilogy that will be coming out at some point. So he's going to be a major influence, um, I think, on this property. Uh, And as part of this new direction... Fans seem to be reacting strongly, at least as far as the narrative we're kind of seeing throughout the media. And I know, Jeremy, you kind of brought to me, sent me this article kind of highlighting all the different aspects of why we're seeing this, possibly, and whether some of it might be real that fans are feeling this way, some of it may be influenced by other things, or all this stuff. And I just kind of want to use that as a way to talk about, like, what is this film doing that's new as far as Star Wars world and if it's doing new things and how well you think guys think that works or not? Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy, can you just talk briefly about like what that article is Oh yeah. talking about? I mean, about? you can, you can Google a little bit. Um, I can put it in the show notes too. Yeah. That you know, like, you know, uh, last Jedi, um, fan backlash. And there, I mean, there, there's a number of, you know, different perspectives on it. I mean, I think that the, the important things are a couple points. One, um, you know, though it, uh, Disney already like mentioned it, like they they have dispensed with the extended universe, which is like all of this uh, novels, literature, books, games, whatever mm-hmm. that happened. You know, uh, after the first trilogy, that sort of expanded that world. Like in in the in the you know extended universe, like every character in Star Wars has a name. They have a history. Right. You know, everyone who pilots all the ships, and if you play like I play the um, uh, you know the fantasy flight. Um, X-Wing game hmm. and like all those characters show up in there um, and so there's you know when when they when they when Disney got this property and did it they're like okay so we're we're telling a different story no longer canon right official canon. Um, which is fine and that and that um, I, I think it was a good thing for them to do because the I mean although I like that like a lot of different people have written for and touched and you know sort of uh, um, given their genius to various Star Wars things, I tend to like the single, like, auteur vision of mm. the original trilogy. I mean, I know it does yeah. a bunch of people, but, like, they have a, a very distinct, unique style all the way through. You know, a different director here, different writer there, mm-hmm. but it's George Lucas's thing all the way through, which I like. And so are the prequels. Yeah, distinct yeah. Yeah, no, no, style. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also like um, like Dave Filoni, who's one of the big writers for the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you can tell 
the stuff that he is involved in. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a quality of writing, there's a quality of execution, there's like a well-cooked quality to it. And and I like I like it when things are done that way. So I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, like you, you don't have... Because, I mean, if you... There are plenty of Star Wars novels which are bad. Shadows of the Empire, for one. Interesting story. Horrible book. <laughs> um, just, just <laughs> horrible. Um, but, you know, like there are cool ships and cool characters and, and all the sort of like the, the secondary stuff is cool. Mm-hmm. But the actual execution of the novel is not that great. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so like I'm okay with that. Um, the other thing... So, but there are people that are grumpy about that. And I, I think you can kind of ignore that... Um, up until the point where you actually meet Luke, right? Like until he talks about what actually happens to the Jedi Academy, then you see that all the stuff of the glorious Jedi Academy of like Luke the badass Jedi right. is doesn't happen. Yeah, and you have a totally different thing that happens after the Return of the Jedi. A totally different world. Mm-hmm. You know, like Luke and Leia don't get along. I mean, it's a, just a different vision. And before <clears throat> the Last Jedi, we didn't know what they were going to do with Luke. Right, sure. right, right. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of complaints. Um, about uh, the portrayal of Luke, um, some about it. Like I think most folks have uh, okay with his death. They're a little grumpy about maybe you know they want it to be a little bit different. But mm-hmm. uh, but just his whole arc is objectionable to some in right. some diehard fans. Um, and there's also, I mean, it's worthwhile to mention like there there's the same kind of complaints um, that you have about like the new female Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. You know, just I mean. I just think they're sexist. But, you know, complaints about, like, you know, why is it, like, a bunch of minorities and women that are taking the places of all these traditionally right. white characters? You know, it, I'm sure it's couched in some sort of different thing about whatever, but that's <laughs> sort of what it is to me. Right. Um, the most interesting thing of these – well, there's two. And, I, and I'm grandstanding a little bit or talking more than I should. But with the idea of, like, the the extended universe, um, the thing that I like most about it, there's um, – in my other discipline, um, I was a religious scholar, and there's a there's an author – um, academic named Paula Richmond who writes about the great Indian epics. She's a, a professor at Oberlin, and she has a book called Many Ramayanas. And there's there's many different um, books that address this issue, but uh, the Ramayana is this great Indian epic, a, a giant epic poem, covers like you know, like all these wonderful great heroes. Um, and there are literally hundreds of versions of it um, that exist, um, passed down orally, that have been written down, that exist in North India and outside of India and South India and all these different communities. Um, and uh, each individual telling of the story uses the same characters and the same events, but emphasizes different things about them to, mm. to, for a different effect. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can tell a Ramayana that has a very feminist bent. You can tell a Ramayana which, which highlights the, um, like the things that our heroes do badly. Right. You know, and you can use it for nationalistic purposes or liberation purposes or all kinds of things. And and sometimes you even change the story. Like you got to have the big points. Like this, you know, this person's at this place at this time. But sometimes you change the story. And so I think that you have these iconic characters, and many different stories are told about them, and they all have interesting value. So I mean, in in our modern world, I get grumpy when like Disney owns Luke Skywalker, mm. right? And they can yeah. say, oh, that stuff didn't happen. But the truth is, you can read those stories and you can learn about the Jedi Academy and that story is just as real as the story mm. that happens in this book. And so you have, you know, parallel stories, you know, yeah. like in, in different ways in which Luke reacts to things, different ways in which this universe plays itself, some tied to the time, you know, the late 80s, some tied to our time. Um, and I don't think that just because Disney says so, um, hmm. these stories have to replace one another. Um, and I think that 
um, because I really like Luke in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that I get to see the Luke that grows into his own and starts the Jedi Academy and restarts the Jedi Order and brings peace and stability to the universe. And I also like the Luke we see in this yeah, movie, Luke. who feels so much um, like the Luke we meet in the movies, where... I mean, he's successful. Yeah. yeah, he's successful because he's got a lot of heart, and because mm-hmm. all the rest are dead. He's he's literally <laughs> he's all that there is left. Um, and I just think, um, and so the second thing, which is the portrayal of Luke, um, I I was I was a bit the first time I saw the movie, I didn't quite know what to do with Luke. Mm-hmm. But after like the, when I saw it the second time, I was immediately sort of like smitten. Hmm. And the third time I saw it, I was like. Oh, this is great. You know, I mean, it, and, it, and it just returns. I mean, so many, so many of the things he says are are on par with those good and classic Yoda sayings. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it. I mean, like, but he's way. presenting a different kind of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of story. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, I think that folks get really like um, George Lucas's movies use very much like archetypes. These mm-hmm. these psychological, almost collective. Um, figures to tell mm-hmm. stories so that like Darth it's not important that Darth Vader is actually Luke's father like mm-hmm. the lineage is not so important but it's the it's the the way in which Dark, Darth Vader is this archetype of the father that's part of the story yeah. um, and I think that Ryan Johnson doesn't do that he's telling us a very very different kind of story mm-hmm. but one that's very very interesting yeah um, and certainly like um, there's no mention really. I mean, the the only mention I think in I know I'm going too long. The only mention of like self awareness about the absurdity of Luke's power is like Han Solo, like in the last, you know, in Return of the Jedi when he's like, I'm out of it for a little while and everybody gets delusions of grandeur, you know, which is funny, but it's only one line. Mm -hmm. Whereas Luke's portrayal in The Last Jedi is constantly in dialogue with this notion of a a great master and a great Mm -hmm. leader and all those sorts of other things. So So, that's my bit about that. I mean, we can start with Luke then. Um, I mean, Colin, how did you feel about Luke in The Last Jedi? Uh, well, for me, the character didn't make much sense. Uh, I really, I mean, I have to just, I'll just announce it. My response is, is relatively mixed to The Last Jedi. I okay. mean, I think that the first hour or so is pretty damn messy. Hmm. Um, actually, not unlike uh, Rogue One. I think hmm. Star Wars under Disney, which, by the way, is running into the same problems of Marvel under Disney, has a first and second act problem. They just it, it doesn't kick into high gear until an hour, an hour and twenty minutes in, and then you're wondering what the stakes are. The, pro- the same problem with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, it seems mm. to me. Yeah, I can uh, see that. And a few others. In this case, uh, I thought Luke was interesting. Uh, obviously, Mark Hamill has a screen presence, and so kept things together. Uh, I like the the whole. I like the premise of them being together on Octo and how they actually build that world out a little bit where Ray is uh, creating some problems for the indigenous peoples who are taking, <laughs> taking care of the place. Um, right. As for Luke, uh, I, I did like, well, let's begin at the beginning. I did like the fact that he tossed away the lightsaber. I thought that was a, a nice nod to the fact that that's what cliffhangers actually do. They're a bait and switch. Uh, the whole first movie of Force Awakens leads up to the handing of the lightsaber, and then you wonder, well, what's next? And then we, uh, the movie ends. We then pick up on that very point uh, mm. at that very moment, and he just tosses it away. There was a premise there that we had not been introduced to, and then suddenly we're there with him. All of a sudden, it's, it doesn't matter to him, and we get this gag, which I didn't mind. A lot of people, as I understand it, 
complained about I, that. Yeah, I didn't love I didn't, it. Okay. I mean, I, I get what he was doing, and I, I'm not against that. Because I think in some ways, Ryan Johnson was also telling the audience, like, this is not going to go how you think it is. Throw out your expectations, you know? I think ju- it seemed a little too jokey for me, too in contrast to what we got in The Force Awakens, that it just, I didn't expect a huge payoff in that moment, but, or even like a side toss would have been not as jokey to me, you know, just mm-hmm. like dropped mm-hmm. it on the ground. Anyways, that's a minor thing. But I think it was a statement by Ryan Johnson to the audience at that point. Yeah. uh, The aspect I liked about it was is that it reminded us that Star Wars is not is uh, there. There are sound serials blown up through a level production values. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they that's what the original A New Hope was. That's what Raiders of the Lost Ark was. Um, and so this, in a sense, reminded me of that, that this is, you know, keep your keep your feet on the ground. That's all this is. <laughs> right. Uh, in, in a sense, uh, if you set aside all the mythology and that kind of thing, that's really what these movies are and what makes them on some level entertaining uh, above and beyond or should I say well below the, all the mythology. So Luke starts there and I don't mind that one gesture. Then there's a bit of floundering. I sort of don't quite know what to make of him. I thought the sequence... I'm curious to think what you think with Yoda was downright clunky and it was clunky to me because they suddenly reintroduced the Luke of uh, Empire Strikes Back who seems uncertain and needs coaching from Yoda and kind of as a result uh, they do away with the Luke that had a little bit more self-assurance and confidence from Return of the Jedi Uh, That was gone, just in a sense, written out in order for what I viewed, somewhat cynically, I guess, as a bit of nostalgia to just have Luke and Yoda there again. I didn't like that scene. Um, I like the idea of burning down, uh, burning the library and that kind of thing. But the execution of it, I just didn't really take to at all. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that one? It was one of my favorite moments. So, I mean... It it really worked for me, and I think maybe the opposite of why it worked for me was that I got to see the old Luke coming through in the in this character um, so many years later. And I I think for me it can be consistent, even though that he has grown into these new areas of thinking and has become you know this kind of master started the school that he still struggles with the same impulsiveness, only kind of sees down this one lane of thought in some ways and, and isn't opening up. So, and I mean, I think also I love bringing back the Yoda of Empire Strikes Back that he was sort of joking with him and kind of mischievous, which I thought was really fun that we sort of got this self-serious Yoda in the prequels. And now we get this kind of original version of how I knew Yoda. So for me, it felt very natural sort of nostalgia moment into the plot and not sort of shoehorned in, but how about you, Jay? Well, I mean, I feel like I need to take a, a like a, a middle position here because <laughs> there's a couple things I have to say. I yeah. mean, there's like off the bat, there's some big choices that I feel like that have to be recognized as awesome. One, it, it's it's a plasticine Yoda, right? That is that is not Andy Serkis doing motion capture. <laughs> that is a physical thing being right. manipulated by people. That's Frank Oz doing Actually Yoda, doing it, yeah. right? Um, and 
I mean, like, and my opinion about that, my, my positive opinion about that is not so much a nostalgia thing. I just think, like, that's how all things should be done. Like, mm-hmm. I have always appreciated, like, the Jim Henson style of stuff as sure. opposed to CGI. Yeah. I like sure, physical the, things. I like the way the they catch light. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's just um, – and I mean, ha- and I think all of us, I speak for all of us, um, getting burned by so much CGI in the prequels, I just don't want it. You know, like, it, it's just too much, like mm-hmm. – you can afford it. Build fifty Yodas. Like yeah. do it in stop motion. I don't care. Yeah. You know, but make make a physical thing. I also think. Um, I mean, having watched that scene three times, the like the scene itself. So I, I echo uh, Colin's sentiment that it, it like it feels awkward. Mm. Like it, it doesn't like because if I think about in is, is it an Empire when when the when Ben comes to talk to Luke the first time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and so like that moment. Like after he goes and counters that thing As in the dark place, yeah. Like that that moment is fabulous mm-hmm. when like when Ben tells him you know the truth about his father, mm-hmm. you know because it's like it's relaxed. He's sitting down and and Ben sort of comes out at that moment. Mm. Um, when Yoda comes out, you know, or manifests in this moment at the tree, it feels awkward. Mm. Like it's just kind of there. Yeah, I mean, like, and I watched the trailers. Eli didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Yoda was going to be in the film. Yeah, um, I was like. And and when when Eli and I we, Eli and I saw the film together for the first time um, with like a, like on an opening weekend mm-hmm. audience and the audience was one hundred percent into the film yeah they were gasping yeah, yeah. they clapped Stopping, like five yeah. times mm-hmm. there was like a hoot and holler when Yoda showed up on the film so the, the I mean the audience was really into it and so yeah. was I so there's a lot of things when I look at the relationship of Yoda and Luke there. I I, I've, I see this awkwardness, but I, and 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 I interject a bunch of stuff in there, and it may just be me rehabilitating it because I want to, mm-hmm. but because I mean because we've all watched the Clone Wars, like the Jedi Order used to be a whole bunch of hundred year old like badass masters, yeah, um, that have trained for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and and even Luke at his best has trained for thirty, <laughs> yeah, twenty. You know, like, he's still this only living child. You know, the only, he's, like, the only one left. Not because he's awesome, yeah. but because he's just the only one left. And, and he beats, again, he beats Darth Vader, not because he is a better fighter or stronger with the Force, because, because of heart. Like, mm-hmm. he, 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 like, is able to touch his emotions. He's, yeah. he's not a better skilled Jedi. He's not better with the Force. And as far as we know, he barely had training right. from a master. That was yeah. Complete, um, so, yeah. And so I... Like, I mean, there's a couple things, like, I mean, there's some elements of Mark Hamill's intonation that, like, if I'm a director, I tweak a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the more I watch it, the more I appreciate the way it is done. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when he's like, but the sacred Jedi text, I'm like, that that freaking line sounds like the Tashi Station line. It sounds sounds horrible. But it also, like, because I hate the Tashi Station line, but but (laughs) it also, it feels like him. Mm -hmm. Um, And and also, like... um, I, and I and I'll just say this at the at the off the what off the top. I think Ryan Johnson's use of nostalgia is so much better than J.J. Abrams in the first one. Of course, I agree. Yeah. Um, even no, I mean, I don't even, agree. Uh, okay, okay, we, we won't talk agree. about that yet. Um, yeah. But um, but I, and so like I I like I like the Yoda and Luke scene with the tree. I, I think it could have been it 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 still feels a little awkward, mm-hmm. but like I mean. When I when I look at those lines and listen to those lines a bunch of times, I like what they had to say. Like I don't think that there's a wasted word or a wasted line in there, especially the thing. I mean, because like when when I read when Yoda talks about a mistake, 
right? I read all the classic Jedi mistakes in there. One, mm. like Obi-Wan doesn't finish off Anakin. Two, from the Clone Wars, the Jedi Order expels Ahsoka when she's clearly the most interesting <laughs> thing that's ever happened to them. <laughs> Right? right, and also the third one, which Luke highlights as well. It's the, it's the great moment in in contemporary Star Wars. That one, yeah. Ahsoka being expelled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it's great. I mean, she's it's just awesome. And, and like those last episodes are the best Clone Wars has to offer. And then the third mistake, which is the whole Darth Sidious business, like all of them with all their heightened Jedi powers, like participate, like and 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 from the Clone Wars, let. Darth Sidious turned them into warriors, mm. right? Because there's characters all across the Clone Wars world that say, you guys are supposed to be peace, peacekeepers and now you're generals. Right. Why are they generals? Because Darth Sidious made them generals. Mm. He, he both corrupted and destroyed the Jedi Order. Yeah. And so that bit about mistakes and making new is like, uh, feels, it carries with, for me, it carries with all the different mistakes that I know that the Jedi have made. And I think that's some of what I appreciate about that moment too is that we've only kind of gotten luke's interpretation of things now in relation to talking to ray yeah and he i think to her even though he's sort of rejecting training her in many ways as a master he's still like sort of uh interacts with her as sort of a Jedi yeah. master and in this case we're seeing a very different way of him interacting and sort of working out what he's going through with somebody who's more wise than him yeah. and i like that shift in how we get to see him working through this stuff yeah. um personally i'll just say that um it, for all the things you said there jeremy i'm gonna have to press the point you, you you said that you said that this felt like luke it felt like luke of empire strikes back it didn't feel like luke of return of the jedi that was the point i was trying to make it, yeah. it, it, felt, it felt like a little bit of a regression there hmm. that i didn't quite understand in the sequence of things now, that's fine that it goes back because it, in many ways this movie and the script mirrors Empire Strikes Back. I see it's all, it's all over it. Yeah. But I do think that they, they, the nostalgia here took hold, that, that creative impulse took hold at the detriment, I think, of the script yeah. and the development of the character here. That's and so, that's yeah, I, no, I, it's a totally valid point. I mean, the way that I thought about it in my head, and again, maybe my rehabilitation, is like because Luke is so critical of like, what a great Jedi he became. Like, that's the Jedi he's talking about in The Return of the Jedi. Mm. Like, you know, he's, he's like, he's badass, he's beating things, he's saving the world. Um, and, and it's like that very approach that, uh, like, prevented him from doing the stuff he wanted to do at the Jedi Academy. Mm. And so it's not surprising that he returns to what seems to me like, a, a, I mean, a more honest Luke, which is he's just got a lot of potential and not a whole lot of training. Because I mean, even like even though, even if we buy that between Empire and Jedi, he does a bunch of Jedi push-ups or whatever they do. Right. Um, we never like we don't really see his progression. Mm-hmm. Like we don't even get a montage. I mean, right. we we see he just says he has a master now. Yeah. yeah I mean, we that. see Yoda say that he's completed his training, right. and that's it. What else do you need? <laughs> what else do you need? I mean, even even Vader acknowledges that he's powerful at that point. It's I, true. I, I'm not sure. I'm not. He. I. I see where you're headed there, and it. It. it I, I. We can press this only so far. I mean, as far yeah. as the criticism goes, um, it. I think we could have rewritten that sequence so that it would have felt a little bit more at ease with Return of the Jedi. That's what I'm saying. Mm. The the whole conversation with Yoda could have could have felt a little bit more 
integrated in the rest of the progression of, of Luke. I realize that we can fill it in and we can and look for uh, ways in which to speculate what happened between these things. But in this, or talk about Return of the Jedi as Luke not quite being there. He is acknowledged as being there, though, as a Jedi at that point. Um, so anyway, that's that. I have no more to add on that point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I mean, that moment I enjoyed, but the first time I saw it, I was sort of surprised at the interaction that was happening. And like you said, that Luke was, you know, sort of taken aback that this library was going to burn and things like that. I mean, that did sort of surprise me the way he reacted. Yeah. And As... I make it, another reaction that surprised me is um, the basic trigger for him to decide to train Ray. Mm-hmm. It just felt sort of throwaway. Um, there was a, there was an, you know, obviously an, a, a nice little callback. Yeah, with R2. message from Leia. Yeah, yeah. I, I so that was that was nice, mm -hmm. uh, but a little too many of these things made for a character that to me was a little lumpy. Hmm. I can see that. I mean, I still have a little trouble, like negotiating his sort of plan in the end and sort of his shifting and i think some of that is okay that we're we're left a little bit to figure it out on our own like what he's thinking through all that um but i guess one of the major points for me of the film is this shift away from the idea of sort of being the jedi as a legend or this sort of mythological <laughs> figures that are only do good and in and, and kind of all the characters we kind of see that they have to not just say, I'm going to be the hero and save the day. I'm one individual who's going to make this moment. We see that in uh, Finn when he's going to try to destroy that big cannon and get stopped by Rose and says, no, that's not what you need to do. That's not being a real hero. Things like that. And then Luke, I feel like, is saying the same thing. Like, no, the Force is available to anyone. It's not just something that the uh, Jedi Masters have to control and hold on to. Like, it's open to anyone. And I am not, like, this legend um, that everybody thinks I am. But then at the end, he does exactly that. He The point at the end with the little kid, I think, is that, hey, we've heard about Luke, this legendary character that's back in the galaxy and he's going to inspire us and give us hope. And so I, I have sort of trouble bringing those two ideas together. And I think some of that is the complications of what Luke was thinking this whole time and, and kind of being confused on that. Um, I think that could have been better handled. I don't know. I think that the, the, the problem with this movie from my perspective to stand back a little bit, and I'll probably mm -hmm. come back to a few points of time permitting, but is I think the, the script is a big problem here, specifically the transitions. And how the characters move and change, what they want to achieve and how they go about achieving it and their goals, things of that nature, how they're articulated. I think that the the script never, I think the filmmakers, Ryan Johnson in particular, he's given the sole scripting credit, although there are probably more people with input. Right. Um, they didn't quite figure who this movie was supposed to be about, I think. And so you get a bunch of characters, it feels almost like a Marvel type ensemble where they're trying to find screen time and things to do for characters like Finn, for instance, where honestly, yeah. for most of that, I just felt like they're just giving him something to do. Right. Um, and so the, with, with Luke, the, the, 
you, you make the transitions, the, uh, the, the, the epiphanies that, I've, okay, I've got to change and I've got to, to train Ray come in, in almost comical moments. Or you think of Kylo Ren when he suddenly decides after the big moment when he and Ray are wrestling, tussling over the lightsaber, he suddenly decides that I'm going to be a pure baddie now. And it just, there's no moment in which this is articulated. It, it just happens. Uh, he's another character that goes through, I mean, I think the worst character, the, the character that, that benefits the least from this movie is Kylo Ren. He really makes no sense to me at this stage. Uh, he's supposed to be, have some good in him at the beginning. He's treated, mistreated by Snoke, uh, made to look lame with this helmet, uh, mocked in that sense, develops sympathy, uh, kills Snoke. Then all of a sudden at the end, we're supposed to buy him as a pure evil figure and uh, confronting Luke. And by that point, there was just, I felt an ambivalence, quite honestly, because I didn't know when he had made the transition. Was it his declaration that I'm the supreme leader that was supposed to sound especially evil? I, I didn't quite get that. In the same, so for the two major characters, which seem to be Luke, the three major characters, Luke, Ray, and, and Ren, I didn't, I didn't quite understand what they were trying to do in terms of the development of these characters. And it got buried under the necessity to write subplots for now far too many characters written into these, this movie. That's why I sort of thought that Force Awakens was a far more successful movie from the standpoint of screenwriting. Uh, one thing I will say, to go back to the point um, that you were making before, it just occurred to me as you were making it, uh, the idea that um, that Luke isn't the perfect Jedi and that the Jedi aren't perfect, it does fit into the Star Wars world building, which is that this is a world in decay. Mm -hmm. uh, that you, fe you feel in, in the, the first three movies, you feel in The Force Awakens, and they brought back here in that interesting way. So I think, in a sense, it's the, the Luke character, at least in the premise, feels like it fits in with that basic idea in the Star Wars world. Um, so, you know, as you can tell, I'm a little bit mixed in all of this, but. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say big picture is looking at these films, I think it's pretty clear that Disney actually didn't have a master plan with this trilogy going forward. I you think know, that's I th painfully evident, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, J.J. Abrams um, and Lawrence Kasdan wrote The Force Awakens and did a, a fine job um, I wish there was less sort of reference to A New Hope in it, um, sort of that map that they put things onto. But, you know, introduce great char great new characters that I want to follow. But I think the trouble is, you know, Ryan Johnson was writing The Last Jedi before Force Awakens even came out. And so he didn't know fan reactions. You know, he didn't know the theories that we would sort of um, that fans were sort of looking to know what was going to happen, like Ray's parents, um, Snoke. I mean, maybe that's kind of obvious that people would want to know about those things. Um, but I don't think that he necessarily had that understanding. But I think in general, that's going to be the weakness. You know, now he's handing off the last film, the ninth, to back to J.J. Abrams. But I don't think they had like, uh, you know, master... Um, sort of Bible built out for this, for these characters and just sort of handed them off. And I think in some ways, Ryan Johnson went in the opposite direction of 
you know, maybe where J.J. Abrams would have went with some of these characters. And I, I have heard him say that he did try to take a look at, you know, what would be things that, situations where you could put these characters in that would challenge sort of what's at their core of who they are. And, and you're right, I think with someone like Finn, we don't get something really strong with that. And, and maybe some of the, the bad part of that is he, Ryan Johnson was more interested in Luke and Ray and Kylo Ren and and you're right. Maybe he just had to say, "Well, I have to do something with Finn," um, and some of these characters. I do have to say one of the things he did yeah. with Finn was like have him fight Captain Phasma amidst explosions and lightning, which just looked great. Lots of reflection. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, there were there were a number of things that I that I liked, but the minute Finn starts fighting Captain Phasma, and you realize that every single explosion in this space <laughs> is just meant to look good off of her armor. I'm like, that's how you make a Star Wars action sequence, right. right? All the all the design details about this stuff doesn't matter unless it looks cool. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff in The Force Awakens I like, mm-hmm. but it's like Starkiller, the base looks stupid. Everything on the base looks <laughs> stupid. You know, like, maybe it looks real or that exists in a – like, it has a very practical function in the Star Wars world. And in that sense, it would be a great place to have a battle in a first-person <laughs> shooter or something, right. for example. But it didn't make for particularly compelling mm. – um, visual stuff, you know, and like, and I just like, I, I have love for the stories of like George Lucas, like buying like hundreds of battleship model kits mm-hmm. and putting them together and just doing flybys with those <laughs> X wings to like get something that looked really good. And you yeah. know, at, at the heart of you know, like they're movies, right? right. And, and they're, they're, the the visual stuff conveys as much information as the other stuff. Um, and if it's gonna be an action film, it's gotta look good. And if it's gonna be Star Wars, it's gotta look really good. And if yeah. you're gonna have a woman with reflective <laughs> armor, you better fill every square inch of that thing with something interesting. And they finally did. Yeah. Um, I Phasma, Phasma's a character that only <laughs> just looks good, though. Yeah, I mean, I she, she, nothing else. It nothing was again else. a throwaway fight. Oh, gosh. Get, or a throwaway character, I, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And in the first I, movie when she goes it, in the dumpster, I was like, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I mean, I, I thought, uh, obviously, she's supposed to be uh, Boba Fett 2.0 in some ways. We're supposed to sort of like, oh, is she, will she, did she die? Is she alive? And boy, does yeah. she look good. Um, doesn't she look neat? She has a cool voice and stuff like that. Curiously, my nephews didn't know that she was a woman. Oh. I have to just, they were 10 year, they're 10 years old, 8 and 10 years old, and they had no idea. Um, well, I know, I know I, my I, wife has mentioned that she doesn't, get to take off her helmet and be a woman, really. We don't see her actual face. Jeremy, you started by talking about, what the, well, the basic question of whether or not uh, Disney is doing a smart thing with Star Wars. No. Whether or not this seems, this idea of creating a unified, truly unified universe, which is something mm-hmm. that uh, at, on this scale we've never seen before. Obviously, you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is doing something on a comparable level. Not quite relying as much on novels, and an ongoing comic series, but still, it, uh, both of these are really grand experiments. I think the Star Wars one happens to be more um, successful at this stage than yeah. the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, which, you know, they, they, they're obviously making tons of money, so who am I to say? But <laughs> on some level, creatively, I, ju- I just don't feel any momentum with, with that franchise. But right. with Star Wars, I do, and we're talking about Captain Phasma a moment ago, I mean, really what we're talking about here is transmedia storytelling, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. seems like Disney is hell-bent on making Star Wars the ultimate transmedia franchise, where 
there, there's all of these characters, there's this unified universe, and we're just going to tell all these stories that move backward and forward in time and fill out this one unified continuity. And it's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I wanted to like Phasma. I think in some ways she looks kind of gaudy uh, from at least the first movie, but she's won me over in terms of the look. Yeah. Uh, and then, so what I did with, with this, I saw The Last Jedi and I thought, boy, this character they flubbed totally in this movie. And so I th thought, okay, well, maybe there's something going on in the adjacent media. This is transmedia. If they are trying to create a unified story that multiplies across platforms, maybe there's something going on in the adjacent media that will be interesting and feed into what they're doing in The Last Jedi and the, and the movie. So I went to the comics, and there's a four-part uh, Captain Phasma story. Hmm. where she is wicked. I'll just put it in those terms. I think she it's a really fantastic story where you actually learn of her backstory, where she comes from. Uh, she then, she you pick up the minute that she sent down that garbage chute in The Force Awakens, and she has to then get off the Starkiller base. So it's a kind of, it's a side quill to the end of uh, The Force Awakens, and then kind of an interquill, if you like, for the rest of it, where it's in between The Force Awakens and picks up moments before The Last Jedi begins. So th that was interesting. Uh, I wish I w the character was that interesting on screen, to be honest. That does bring up an interesting question about, as a side note, and I think it, it does tie into this bigger picture of uh, modern franchises and what Disney is doing. But and I'm interested in transmedia in general. But do you guys think that, like, are we just shifting in general as a media culture that we're sort of can just balance all of these different media, books, comic books, video games, the films, TV, animated, on sort of an equal level? I know at, doing this podcast, we're sort of like movie guys and traditionally i mean that's kind of what we studied and stuff jeremy and colin but uh but you know do you think we are shifting to that degree or do you think the films i mean they're probably still the biggest money maker directly at this point but do you think that's kind of the direction things are going is it gonna feel like we need to be reading these other um ancillary uh stories in order to understand Sort of what's happening in the films. Well, I mean, I mean, Colin is the academic here, so he'll probably yeah. have something cool to say. But from from like a just a uh, like a person who likes things mm -hmm. and um, you know a filmmaker and a, a dad. I mean, the thing that I think would um, so like we like we have Star Wars. Like we watch the films, we own the films, we have yeah. toys. We just bought we have Battlefront Two for Xbox, which we play the crap out of all the time. Mm -hmm. we, I mean, we talk about Phasma all the time because he's a great character in that <laughs> in that game. Um, we play like board games based on Star Wars. We have all we have lots of things, and we don't read the comic books. But yeah. the thing that I the thing that would be different for me is if like. At some point, someone would say – there would be some kind of advertisement that's like, hey, want to know more about Captain Phasma? Check out the comic books because hmm. I don't see it. You know, right. and it's you like Because it's like there's the comic book milieu and crowd. There's mm -hmm. the movie crowd, which is sort of general public. Right. There's like niche games. There's mm -hmm. – you know, because there's, there's like a so – like Fantasy Flight has a couple of like very complicated but very cool Star Wars games that are only for a particular crowd. Yeah. Com you know, and uh, you know, and there's like in the video game crowd. And so mm -hmm. I think like – there are a lot of people that, you know, they do a lot of those, mm -hmm. but there are, I think there are a few that do all of them. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think that I, I assume that someone at at Disney is looking at you know is tracking like like you know okay so Phasma's story isn't a list so it's not going into the Last Jedi so we're gonna put it in comic books or we're gonna right. put it you know essentially right. like when they make yeah. you know the Land Before Time four and it goes straight to VHS <laughs> back in the day you know like Same this thing. level of story Same isn't thing. gonna go there yeah. um, but I mean I guess. I mean, for so me, like Star Wars isn't. When we say Star Wars, it isn't necessarily just movies anymore. Well, like that, but but that e- concept, even yeah. back in the day, like I played Dark Forces, mm-hmm. you know, in which you have there are characters that come out of that game that are like you know staples. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- there's always, I mean, Star Wars has always been at least since my experience of it. I didn't yeah. see it in the theaters. You know, I'm a sort of second generation Star Wars person right. has always been this collection of movies, mm-hmm. comic books, novels. Video games, toys, you know, and, and and Star Wars probably is the thing that did that, to, right? To many degrees, um, you know, like, but it, but James it's also, I mean, was doing it before that, but yeah, James, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the have to um, throw that in, yeah, yeah, no, yes, I, yeah, totally yeah. Um, uh, but it's like, and the thing that, like, as an adult that I appreciate is like there are different people doing those different pieces. Mm. Like, there's a computer game called. Um, uh, Knights of the Old Republic, mm-hmm. one of the best. It, yeah. it, it's a role-playing game in like the age of like the, the height of the Sith and the Jedi. I mean, it's fabulous. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fabulous storytelling. It's a bit clunky if you like if you were to go out and Google it and play it. It's kind of clunky to play these days by modern standards. Yeah. But I mean, it is a phenomenal storyline, very very well done. Mm-hmm. And like that, and those people mm-hmm. who made it um, did a really really great job. You know, and and that's the. I mean, I would say that the level of that story is it could have been a film and it would have been just great. Or it could have been a series of films that would have been just great, um, but you know the and that was an old um, Lucas Arts um, game. Yeah, um, you know, and Lucas Arts has been, you know has often done that. Like they've, I mean, like they made great movies and they made great games, like Rebel Assault, the original X Wing, the original Tie Fighter. You know, and people that like don't, you know, I mean, it's hard to say they didn't do or like Star Wars, but mm-hmm. they encountered it primarily through these games. Um, it's always been that way, I think. Yeah, um, I just think that. In the old days, in the, in, with the original trilogy, because, you know, I grew up in a world, like, there weren't Star Wars video games when Star Wars came out. They came right. later. You know, th- that's sort of like in the secondary area. Mm-hmm. So they were making that stuff not in conjunction with films, but now with, with like, all the sort of modern integrated stuff, yeah. you know, it's, it's being built at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did, I, did have to, I did have to say one thing from before, which is, uh, yeah. before we leave and go totally into something else, um, the Collins comment about, like, there's so many people in the script and the script is weak for it there's a point at which i agree with that but there's another point and i don't this is my perspective i think that there is something subversive going on with the way they handle protagonists in the film and i think that the initial scene between rose and finn when rose is in the when finn's going to the escape pod Mm -hmm. when i initially saw the the scene it felt very very awkward yeah i i did not know why it was there Mm -hmm. i don't know why finn was acting the way that he was i i rose was strangely heroic and i didn't understand why and i i just didn't get it but over time i i what what i think is going on is like in, in, in the old in the old Star Wars perspective, the only people that matter are the heroes, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And they need to go do their hero thing because right. that's what's going to save people, right. right? And this movie is saying that's not the way it's going to happen. <laughs> it's not a couple people breaking the rules, defying all the odds, and due to mere force of being the force 
embodied protagonists right. are going to save people. Even Luke says it himself. What are, what are we going to do? Take a laser sword and face down the entire First Order? And so, and, 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 and Rose has that perspective too, that it's not a couple of heroes ignoring people that's going to do it. Two of my favorite individual shots in all of Star Wars are as follows. <laughs> One, in The New Hope, right before uh, when, at the very beginning of the film, when the blockade runner gets captured... And right before they're about to get boarded, there's like two shots of all the rebels lined up at the door. And what always struck me was how old they were and how like pretty in – they did not seem like <laughs> badass soldiers. Right. They seemed like a bunch of academic revolutionaries mm. that had joined this cause and were going to like devote their lives to something they were not particularly good at because they believed in it. Right. And, it and that like moment of humanity always struck me. Second one comes in this movie after Poe Dameron leads the like the thing to destroy the dreadnought. Big thing. Yeah. Leia glances down at this display that has a, a readout of all the different ships on it, and like all but three of them are dead. Mm-hmm. Right. And the film shows us that. And I think even though there's talk and other stuff going on at the same time, the emphasis on that thing tells me more about what this film is trying to say. Because mm-hmm. you know. F- you know, Poe's like, there's a lot of heroes, and she's like, they're dead heroes. And, yeah. and Leia's delivery of the line is not fabulous. Poe, I think, mm-hmm. is a better actor, yeah. and he upstages her. But I think the film and the script shows me that um, at that moment. Mm-hmm. And also, because it, it, it goes along with what Rose is saying. And also, and the film, like, the, the guys that go on a crazy adventure to save them doesn't work. Right. It, it, it totally it backfires, backfires and yeah. does not help at all. Actually, probably, and, and it's because they brought the code breaker to them on this crazy mission that gets half those transports destroyed when they're going down to crate. Right. And I think that those, even though it's it's not a lot of the things I like about the film are not done in exposition, which mm-hmm. I like. But Finn's learning a lesson through all that. Yeah. About himself. Yeah, and when right. we're by watching Finn, we're seeing that because, mm-hmm. and I think that there's because I've always, as much as I love a, a nice like Clint Eastwood three act. Protagonist that has a clear goal kind of film. I, I also am always bothered by it. Like mm. you know, because even when I'm talking with my son, I'm like, if we're reading a book and there's like we're like a hundred pages in, I'm like, oh no, is our hero gonna die? And he's like, no, there's like two hundred pages left in the book. You know, there's right. some element of like they're the protagonist, and I know what happens with the protagonists. Yep. Um, and there's just an element of like the way life truly is that always makes me grump a little bit mm-hmm. at that element of the protagonist always making it right. so i there is i think an intentional subversive aspect to it in this film mm-hmm. and i think it's also shown when like when ray goes down to see who her parents are mm-hmm. and like boy did i was not expecting whatever that was right. the first time um and there's a lot of things it can mean mm-hmm. um but one of the things it means for me after three viewings is like it doesn't matter ray made herself <laughs> Right. right, the the ray that we know, this person in front of us, she is responsible for who that person is. Right, she formed that, um, which is a, a very different story than the reason why you are really powerful is because you have forty thousand medichlorians in you, or for, you mm-hmm. know, four hundred thousand medichlorians or whatever. Which is a totally different kind of hero. Yeah, like, sh- go ahead. Okay, well, look, um, a few things to say then. Uh, let's begin at the beginning. I think with the with the idea of transmedia. I think uh, Jeremy raised an important point about what they, what Star Wars is up to. I think they're hoping to see how far they can go with this type of thing. So mm-hmm. I agree with Jeremy that there's a clear distinction between primary and secondary and tertiary 
media here, if we have to use those terms. Yeah. I sound like an academic, so let me, as Jeremy put it, so let me be simpler. Yeah. I think it's clear that the movies are the backbone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone know if the if the movies start doing poorly at the box office, as difficult as that is to imagine, then we wouldn't even be talking about Star Wars. Right. So there's no question about it that this is the major driver of this whole franchise. It's now the major driver of of uh, of Marvel, at least in the cinematic universe, as the name suggests. It's a key. It's the key driver in the James Bond franchise. Blah blah blah. Down the line, mm-hmm. no question about it. I still think, though, that Disney is hoping that they can, they're hoping that they can push that a little further so that they can get a broader base of franchise users, to use a very broad term, Mm -hmm. to to migrate, to to go to different adjacent media to pick up on shreds of the story and piece together the larger puzzle. Because quite frankly, look, if you don't go to the Phasma comic, you won't know what happened to her. Mm-hmm. That basic question is not answered in any of the movies. Right. Now, is it played up? No, she is a secondary character. So you almost don't have to pay attention to it. So when I went to go see it with my nephews who are big time into Star Wars, they wondered, wait, <laughs> what happened to Phasma? At the same time, I, with, uh, I saw it with my father, and he was oblivious. Hmm. He's not you know, uh, cluing into the major plot points and the developments of all the primary, secondary, right. tertiary characters and all that kind of thing. Here's what I would say then. As, so Disney is trying to push that. And they're going to push it even further with the new Star Wars land or whatever it's going to be called at Disney Hollywood Studios, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be a canon. Huh. To, the only way you're going to understand the story going on there is to go there. Hmm. Now, how many millions of people will be drawn there? That's not, yeah. that's not a small amount. It's going to be a major amount. And so what you're seeing here is the, that Disney might be gaining steam on the idea that they're getting people to migrate hmm. in, in these ways. This is, the premise is nothing new. Uh, uh, Matrix, yeah. the Matrix franchise, in order to understand a plot event in one of the Matrix movies, you have to play the video game. But very few people knew about that or even worried about it mm-hmm. and or even took note for that matter. So I think that Star Wars is will try to push that, but only to a point. And I think the idea is this. You're not going to get a, uh, a, a Star Wars trilogy whereby some event, like some major turn on the part of a character or whatever, one of the major characters that is, happens in a comic. So that the day, so that the day before they're going to release a comic, the day before the release of a movie, they're going to release a comic so that you have to read the comic to understand the movie in its entirety, like the major arc. That's not going to happen. So what they're going to hope to do, it seems to me, this is a prediction, I could be wrong, is to continue to create, I guess what I call versatile entertainments. Hmm. So you're going to have these movies that have these these relatively minor plot points that encourage you to fill out the story to migrate to the comics or the novels or whatever. They, they're going to play for some audiences that way, but the broader mass audience won't give a damn. They'll pay a ticket, they'll get entertainment, and that will be it. So they'll play for both audiences simultaneously. I think that's the art moving forward of these major franchises. I think that's the idea that they're probably aiming for. Uh, so that's the point about, I think, that Jeremy raised several minutes ago about the about transmedia and where that might be right. headed, mm-hmm. speculation about Star Wars. As far as the sub, the getting back to the Last Jedi, mm-hmm. 
I like, you mentioned Rose. I like the Rose character. And I would add, I wanted to like her more. Um, I like the way she b- began. I like the whole subplot with, the, with her sister. I do agree with Jeremy. I think that's very fresh. Giving, giving this, this sort of rounder characterization to a very minor character feels extraordinarily fresh, especially given the race and the gender of the character. Right. And it's, as I understand, a lot of Star Wars fans, or at least some, are complaining about all of the above. You know, <laughs> why, why are we wasting so much time, etc. The thing is, though, for me, with this movie, I keep coming back to the idea that this, the script is pretty clunky. It's almost as if Ryan Johnson should have reminded, been reminded along the way that less is more. With Rose, they had she, he had the beginning, it was and the end. The kiss is great with Finn. I think that's unbelievable, and it sets up this idea of a of a little mini love triangle, which you hope gets developed as things go on with involving Ray too, perhaps. But um, it's the midpoint that I think is really slow and rough and almost too much fan service, where he gives her this whole. Uh, backstory when they're on the casino planet of Canto Bight, which I found that whole sequence to me felt so much like the prequels that I, at that point I was almost feeling, Oh no, we're dipping into pre prequel terrain here. Uh, even to the extent that it breaks out into a really rough chase sequence that seems very under motivated and all about the fact that they can just do it and they need an action sequence there. Mm. It all felt like the prequel. So, uh, you know, um, just to, to round out this point, I think it is interesting. There is a new kind of writing going on here. Some people may not like this comparison. I think it's almost like television writing, where what they're trying to do is have a large cast of characters, and they're giving you two and a half hours, where the first hour they're fattening up all of these all of these plots and subplots. They still have one major line. It's about Luke, and that does follow four acts. I think we can break that down. But then as that's going on, they give a lot more screen time to subsidiary characters and plump them up a little bit in the way that TV shows do and give the, these characters an arc. That, to me, is, is really promising going forward, and I hope they keep doing it. At the same time, though, they need to find, a, it seems to me, a better balance uh, and give more screen time, perhaps. Maybe it's a matter of screen time. Maybe it's a matter of just how you do it with the screen time you've got to the, the major thread, the major arc of the story. Because, again... I would keep coming back to the point. I'm not sure that Luke and Kylo Ren and their developments make a, a terrible amount of sense. Hmm. I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you guys in general about this film, do you think, I mean, setting aside kind of like negative fan reaction or whatever, but do you in general feel like this film kind of creates uh, like maybe a new writing style, kind of a... Um, a writing uh, form for Star Wars and how they treat the characters and sort of a linear shape to it and kind of messes with that as far as maybe like a new understanding of the Force, um, kind of opening it up to more people and obviously kind of moving away from the midichlorians you were talking about, Jeremy. And uh, <laughs> also just like how it's, what it's doing with these characters and kind of breaking them down away from these archetypes you know, we're not quite sure what's happening with Kylo Ren and Rey, I think. Uh, we always kind of had this idea of, like, a master and apprentice and kind of this balance between good and evil, and it seems a little bit more gray and blurred right now. 
of what's yeah, happening and where, and where well, we're Well, I mean, so when you describe Kylo Ren as like instant full baddie, that's not – that was not my impression of it. And I mean, it, yeah, mm-hmm. he says he's the supreme leader and he does like try to kill Luke. Um, but I mean, I I would not be surprised if he – creates an empire that looks different in the third movie yeah i mean i mean this is assuming that whoever writes it like follows some (laughs) sort of logical thing but i mean like kylo ren is very interesting to me when he when after they kill snoke and they beat the praetorian guards and he asks ray to join him because it's not like we'll rule the galaxy as father and son Mm -hmm. it's like we will dispense with this historical fighting each other right. and create something new. That's interesting and attractive. Sure. And, and again, and it's like in like we get from the DJ character, like it's not insubstantial that like for all the stuff Rose says about Canto Bite, there's also people in there selling engines for X, you know, X seventy X wings, T seventy X wings, right? And that. Um, like the business about, you know, you're gonna, you know, like when he calls it all a machine, like this is arguing about the, the, you know, like the military industrial complex, like a a salient modern argument, um, taking place in the Star Wars film, small, but since there are so many people, they each have a little thing that they say. Um, and like, and, and there's something about the, like, I really liked Kylo Ren's voice in this film mm. he's a he's a different kind of creepy because mm-hmm. like when he's like like the, the two times he, he tells ray to say it he's like say it yeah say it it feels intimate mm. and not entirely bad mm. um like he's helping her but he's also different you know he's not he's not and, and ray plays a very straightforward good truth focused innocent character right and he is not just evil yeah, I mean, um, I I was unsure how to read him in this film most of the way through. So that moment, I think it was both a switch that he killed Snoke and then switched back to, hey, I'm not just going over to the good Jedi side now um, because I helped you. Um, I want to still sort of be in power and rule things and you should come with me. But and I And I can see people thinking that's either like, not well conveyed his sort of battle but looking back and seeing a second time i thought it was like i i felt like he was acting well but i wasn't sure what he was thinking that moment that he sort of killed snoke and he was contemplating what was going to happen so it was completely feasible for me that he still had sort of this personal motivation that he was still going after even though he was sort of sympathizing with ray and that may have been genuine on some terms he still is pursuing his own plans. Um, and, and maybe, I think he those characters are young enough that they don't have, like, a master plan, but they sort of, like, he knows he wants power and to be powerful. You know, like, to control things, but he doesn't know, like, he's going to control the First Order in the way that Snoke did, you know? like yeah. Said, yeah. The scene, I think, on Snoke's ship was great. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the better scenes in the movie, visually, yeah, in terms great. of storytelling. I love the fact that they killed off Snoke. Um, I think, you know, in a sense, who cares about Snoke anyway? Um, <laughs> we didn't know no, anything I mean, about I, him, so. I, right. I mean, in a, in a way, it's it's good that we didn't get all all those fans begging or all that speculation, if you'll remember. They were begging mm-hmm. for answers about who's Snoke, is he this, is he that. Yeah. I think it's it was handled perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it was a big shock in the room. And when I saw it on opening night, the the crowd burst into applause. And I thought, yeah, great. Yeah, when we saw it, yeah. Totally yeah. Sold on it. yeah, totally yeah. sold on it. 
Um, and, and even Ren at that point made more sense to me. Hmm. It's just later when Luke returns as yeah. what we think is Luke, although yeah. he looks different, and I didn't quite know what to make sense of that at the time, but obviously in retrospect it does make sense. Uh, when he returns and has that conversation with Leia, and he basically says, you guys will be able to quote it better than I will, um, he basically says, I've got to take out your son. Yeah, I didn't come to, you know, save him. Right. I can't yes. face him. So, yeah. so that that seems to me like we're, it's quite clear that we're being oriented to view Ren as a pure evil figure. I mean, otherwise, you know, wouldn't Leia have responded differently? Wouldn't she have been seeking some sort of... Uh, uh, compassion or sympathy on his part she just basically agreed because there was nothing else left to do that's all that was left of- yeah so see I, it, it's I, my opinion I, that it's oh, go ahead no go ahead go ahead it's my opinion that it's that's not her role to play that's ray's role to play just like it was luke's role to play because like obi-wan is convinced that darth vader is bad yoda's convinced that darth vader is bad it's only luke that like you know, sort of sees the conflict in him and thinks he can do something about it. And that's what that's what Ray's job is, right? She doesn't kill him. Tries to, but doesn't. And also, um, and I think that in the third film, again, assuming like the linearity makes sense, it's going to be her that has some kind of moment with him. Because, um, I mean, it's, I mean... Hopefully, because, because the whole idea, especially from the first, from The Force Awakens, is she wants her son back. And she believes that it's possible, and she—that's the—that's the one of the main drivers aside from leading the resistance. So that's why that didn't make sense to me, because in the she in the Force Awakens, she's driven by this idea that it's Snoke's fault, hmm. and then all of a sudden she Luke's come comes back, and his uncle is going to take him out. I, I didn't quite get that scene. I mean, that's why I was getting these conflicting cues that led me to believe it's a screenwriting problem. I mean, that they had to write toward a conclusion that was a, a really iconic moment. I mean, Luke, the whole thing that happened with Luke, him being fired upon, uh, him, the whole uh, lightsaber battle or whatever, uh, you know, lack of a battle, if you like, I thought it was superb yeah. uh, to come back to the Luke point. Um, I mean, you, but yeah. you could view it as at that moment, I don't know that Leia had much hope for the survival of the resistance. You know, facing the. Uh, army that Kylo Ren had brought to their base. So, I mean, in some ways, maybe it wasn't conveyed well, but she was balancing, like, do I let the resistance die to try to, you know, face saving my son or, you know, just letting that happen. Yeah, I, I, but wasn't, there was, there another, wasn't there another little clunky element in there? I didn't, I have to open up a little parentheses here. Mm-hmm. I didn't, this movie didn't quite make it clear to me what, uh, the first order is. Yeah, it didn't quite I mean, make I, it. I it didn't that's... quite make it fit to me what the resistance is resisting. So the stakes were totally unclear in this movie. So when in that very scene they try to, I think it's the very scene. It may have been a few scenes before they try to call out for people yeah. to help. Right. Who is it that they're calling? Uh, the, the the brilliance of the the word empire mm. in the first trilogy is you get it. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat. Yeah. The first order, we're, we're told in the opening crawl, reigns. Reigns what? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I, that, that was a major thing throughout this movie I didn't quite understand in terms of the stakes. Again, a screenwriting problem from my perspective that feeds back into that scene where if she's hoping to save this resistance, what is she hoping to save? And then this idea of her son, it's okay that he's going to be taken out by Luke, didn't, I, just didn't. They were writing to a conclusion there, it felt to me. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I think this film is a direct continuation of The Force Awakens as far as, like, timeline. Yeah. So I think we... And then we get the emphasis here of the First Order, you know, with Finn is raising these children to be soldiers, um, killing people unnecessarily, you know, following orders, and then we get on Canto Bite, however sort of clunky that message is that it's also allowing these sort of rich people to take advantage of others and you know they can finance you know this this galaxy government or whatever um and still kind of have their piece of it and so i think it's it's allowing all those things to happen and i feel like the and this is maybe obvious but the it's it's showing a cycle that's happening in the galaxy that they can't quite contain or you know we see a victory at the end of the return of jedi but something else just rises up in its spot to take over and just continue there's a giant planet that uses suns as fuel to shoot right. I mean, it, it makes sense you just need something bigger right yeah, yeah. Um, uh but Eli, i think you're, yeah. to go back to your initial question here does this feel like it's written in any way that's new hmm. um that you were mentioning a moment yeah. ago i think i think that it it's not really this movie it seems to me that it's Rogue One. Hmm. Right now, to me, in the Disney period, the best movie is Rogue One, hands down. Hmm. Uh, and Rogue One did a similar thing. If you note that the script is quite similar in having an ensemble cast, it's almost like yeah. they took that template and worked the characters from Force Awakens into it to a certain extent, except, of course, they have other devices like the Force and stuff like that that didn't play much of a role in Rogue One. Right. So I think that this idea, it may be, we may looking, be looking back in five, six years and say, okay, Rogue One was the pivot mm-hmm. where they're going to suddenly decide the, to do these more ensemble things because maybe it gives more opportunities to do things that Jeremy was talking about before, which is to spin things out into the video games and other kinds of things. Yeah. But um, I'm struck by how when this movie ended, there were very few, the movie itself the storytelling and so on don't doesn't really pose any questions moving forward. I, I I'm struck by how much I really have. There's no anticipation created within the movie itself. We can create anticipation. We can say, okay, right. there's this stuff and so on. But as you said a moment ago or a little while ago, it doesn't seem like it's building toward a trilogy like climax where there's a confrontation in the same way that Vader and Luke was built to. That was necessary, a driving, a driver. At this stage, it seems to me, maybe we can speculate, perhaps one of the best things they can do, uh, I can't remember which one of you mentioned it, but was to have now Ren the head of a slightly different empire. Yeah. yeah. Set, set the next movie years after this. Have, a, have an ellipsis. Right. So that there's a, you can almost press reset by the amount of time that has passed. And that might be just the kind of creative platform that's needed. The only thing that I've read, and I think it's J.J. Uh, Abrams said it, about the third movie is, and we can take this the way we like, I'm not sure that this is positive, I'm not sure it's negative. He says that this next movie will tie in all three trilogies. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. no speculation. <sighs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're kind of um, touching on some of the uh, backlash that's happening is I've heard both point of views that people feel like, yeah, you know, like we didn't get the sort of questions answered. We thought like race parents, Snoke, those didn't go anywhere. 
um, it kind of, it was a very long film. And so I think in some ways, like watching a second time, I did feel once they went down to crate, normally that's sort of where there would have been a cliffhanger um, in a Star Wars film and then cut there um, before we get the battle with Luke and everything. But I like that it went through his whole character. But I think, like you said, some people are feeling like, well, what am I even expecting in the next film? And I've heard other people feel like, you know, this is wide open. We have no idea right. what's going to happen, and it's exciting um, yeah. to, to have that possibilities um, and not need, like, these specific things answered. Like, he kind of opened up the world to anything can happen. Yeah, now. I mean, and I think that, like, I, I mean, there's a couple things I have to say. One, um, the minute I get to see a shot of Crate, I am ecstatic. I'm like, wow. Like, somebody had some intestinal fortitude <laughs> and totally made something interesting and new. Mm-hmm. Given, sure, what, it's, it's salt, it looks like snow, it's maybe like Hoth, but yeah. it's not like the Hoth battle. Right. Like, all of those shots with the red underneath, there's no blood in Star Wars except that tiny little bit of Moss Eisley, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, like, the visual images that are created when they're there are spectacular. Yeah. You know, and, and I love, like, pretty much everything from when they get to there's blood to in the end. There's blood That's in Force Awakens. That's true. Yeah. And, and the red, I think, ties back to Snoke's throne room. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's vivid. just, um, yeah, the, yeah, there's a little no, bit No, visually blood. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, and, and, like and, and, I was, and I was totally struck. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, like, if this is, you know, like, if I were in charge of making Star Wars films and somebody showed me this as their resume, I'd be like, you can do whatever you want. Because <laughs> it also, it also, I mean, from my point of view, it was the first, like, create, totally creative thing that I had seen since I in the new Disney mm. Star Wars, it, yeah. it felt like the most, like somebody sat down and like sketched it on the back of a napkin, and then <laughs> talked to some other people about it, and took this sort of really singular idea and turned it into a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like and like you mentioned, you thought Luke's thing was superb. I like I, it's like the one of the best Jedi things in all of Jedi dumb, right? You <laughs> no know, no um, and you know, and it's like even watching it, I was like. They give you the cue about how Luke's foot doesn't move the salt. Like I didn't mm-hmm. get it. Like I, I mean, right, like I, I was <laughs> hook, line, and sinker all the way through until he puts his lightsaber through him, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool," you know, <laughs> you know. And then, and again, and we get like, and we we get what it allows us to do from a Star Wars perspective. We get a lightsaber battle, which is the way Obi Wan dies, and we also get like the quiet passing away, like Yoda does. Yeah, and that that shot. With that like table, that little water table, and the thing, beautiful. Yeah, you know, and you get the, the shot of him sitting away, there with the yeah. two sons. Just, I mean, like, fabulous. The, the 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 so the other thing I wanted to say was I I mentioned earlier that I, I like Ryan Johnson's use of nostalgia in this one, um, and I and I just wanted to make two points about that. The first of which is I think fairly obvious one when Luke's like, "There's nothing you can say or do that could help you know, ha- cause me to help you," and then R two D two plays the original message. There, there's something about just copying the original that I liked better than like J.J. Abrams making it seem almost exactly like it in the first one. Mm. I liked – he doesn't play – it's not like there's a message like it. He plays that message. The other thing is in all the times that the Millennium Falcon comes back, the time I like it most is on crate – when Rose has three TIE fighters lined up behind her, she is about to get shot. We see it line up in the sights just like Luke in the first <laughs> Death Star. And that's when the Millennium Falcon comes in and shoots all three of them. Yeah. I was like, 
yes! Like, the, and, like, the only person in the theater that said that. Like, that is what, like, that like that nostalgia I am in for, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was coming. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm sort of a sucker for those kinds of things. Yeah. But, like, that's what Han coming in, or the, the Millennium Falcon, if that's mm-hmm. what this ship does in this universe, coming in at the last moment <laughs> right. feels like, yeah. right? There's no other hope, and then out of the there blue comes, comes this, you know, clunky old freighter that happens to outmaneuver everything yeah. with a grumpy, hairy pilot. And so I, I, those two moments, for me, were better than anything that happens in A Force Awakens for the nostalgia thing. And I can't – there are certain things. Starkiller Base, Rathtars. I, I don't <laughs> like them. It, it, it kind of like cheapens the franchise to have them in there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you, know, it, like, you know, like the best part – I mean I'm ranting here, but the best – Millennium Falcon scene in A Force Awakens is the one they show in the trailer when we don't know what's going on, but Han and Chewie go into the Millennium Falcon and Han's like, we're home. Yeah. The best part about it. Like, anyway. We already saw it. Yeah. I mean, for me, kind right. of talking big picture of these films, I, I would say overall, I feel like The Force Awakens is like, a, works as a whole a little bit better. And I agree. I don't know if I'm quite seeing it the same way you are, Colin, in the sort of clunkiness. I think there was some clunkiness in the editing and the back and forth, and maybe that was some script things, maybe it was editing. I just thought it was a little bit like, I just wanted to stay with Luke and Ray a little bit more, like in one chunk, Yeah. Um, and feel that. I'd... It kept like sort of pulling me out of that, and I'm like, oh, we're back. I'm just going to get this little tidbit, and then we're going to pull away from it. So I would have liked to see those things a little more cohesive. And I think overall, The Force Awakens just flows better. And I think J.J. Abrams is a little bit better at the character interaction. Like, everybody just seemed to really have great chemistry together. And I don't think there was bad acting in The Last Jedi, but some of it just, like, didn't quite play off each other as well. That's just kind of my personal thing. But, I, I mean, some iconic moments, I think... Well, I should say, I think Ryan Johnson overall, though, demonstrated more unique filmmaking and what he brought to the franchise. Yeah. I think it was um, more unique. The the opening sequence of, like, the bombers, like, totally had me hooked. Totally. Like, e- excellent sequence. Yeah, he, he drew me in. He referenced back to, you know, how George Lucas used those old uh, fighter films, you know? Yeah. Uh, fighter pilots and stuff, and he used this kind of same concept. Uh, looking back at those, I think when they kill Snoke and Ray puts up her hand and catches a lightsaber is going to be one of the most iconic Star Wars moments yeah. um, that you'll see. That sort of imagery uh, was just such a fun moment. And then the battle afterwards. So I, for me right now, I think I'm sort of like in a similar place between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. I think the experience of The Last Jedi and all the reveals and surprises was a more exciting experience overall. Um, so I respect it on that level. Like, had tons of fun um, in the yeah. theater watching that. And I do want to echo what you said, Colin, about Rogue One. I mean, I, like, the, the only thing that I don't like about Rogue One is uh, so many of the characters are, like, indistinct. Like, I don't remember... Like, I, I remember, like, the the... Like the I don't know, like, like the kind of forcey guy and the guy with the big machine gun. Mm-hmm. But, like, all the people on our team... Like, I don't remember their names. They all kind of look and act the same. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing about it. Because I think, like, there's so much about it that I, I like, you know. And I think, like, you know, in my ranking is, like, The Last Jedi, close second, Rogue One, and then, you know, 
uh, The Force Awakens over there, yeah. um, which is good, but it's not my favorite. Um, but I, I also wanted to say, as we draw to a close here soon, um, your comment about this, like the script feeling more like television writing. It's something that I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, but I totally agree with you. And one of the things, one of the like uh, other franchises, I guess you could say, that I look to in terms of like transmedia is um, Firefly. You know, because Joss Whedon made this television show. Um, it there are comic books that are made uh, that happen in between the the uh, television show and the movie, and there's a movie. And he talks a lot about like the difference between writing for film and writing for you know. Uh, television he talks about uh films as being more masculine sort of like all about action and television is a lot more you can have more people spend more time talking about things um and i think that when i heard you mention it, it's something that i really liked about the last jedi i'm like i feel like i could have entertained another hour of film <laughs> i could have had an intermission we could right. have like had a new film viewing experience um because i i didn't care that there were four different storylines happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't even, like, I understand, like, our filmmakers make a, what I, I feel like is a classic token thing where they're, like, making, they're, they're showing us how they're happening at the same time. So we have to mm-hmm. care about them, right? Because, you know, like, like something happens, we come back to the ship being shelled, right? We yeah. know, we know. Like, I don't even care they're, they're happening at the same time. I don't even care that the resistance is immediately under threat in 18 hours. Like, mm-hmm. I am totally satisfied to follow all these four storylines to their completion. And I will wait until that happens. Yeah. Um, and I feel that that's something that, like, in a television show, when you're, you know, so you're going to have 15, 18... 20 25 30 episodes it doesn't need to happen now mm-hmm. I, i'm happily to, happy to wait for it and i think that in the star wars world that is why um the clone wars has so many good characters and storylines because you know it's like it can be they can just go off and tell a story right and, and, and it can be one episode it can be four episodes um and i think that like like the the point that you made about the first order earlier colin i think is in that it being kind of like who are they totally valid i also <laughs> think that I mean, it's it's six six seasons of the Clone Wars that really helps me feel the enormity of what the Emperor becomes. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, like, in the original trilogy, it's like, he's an evil Emperor and has their evil space Nazis. You know, like, that's about what they are, which is essentially what the First Order is. Right. Um, uh, and they're trying to wipe out the Resistance. Because um, I've watched the A New Hope a number of times with my family recently. Like, it's... It's really sparse with the information Total. it gives you. It's like they're bad. They kill Luke's parents. Now they're off in space. They blew up this planet, which we know nothing about. And now Luke's going to destroy the Death Star. Um, in sh- like that's about right. it. Um, and and I and I. It's interesting watching it with my like you know seven, eight, nine year old son. He has all these questions about stuff, and I'm like, I know the answers to all that. I don't entirely know how or why I know right. all the answers it's to this stuff. It's not in the film. But it's <laughs> yeah. not in the film. It's yeah. in later films and references and expanded universes and all this other stuff. Right. Um, and so I, I didn't really see it as a – well, I didn't see it as a, as a, a shortfall in The Last Jedi um, just because it's like, yeah, yeah, it's whatever, the evil bad guys. I mean like I, it would be nice if they give us more about it. Um, and I think they try to in The Force Awakens with their like space Nazi rallies. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they have it on Starkiller Base, and there's just I, – I, I, Eli and I talk about this often. Don't get they, me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to see 
a prequel style explanation of the politics of the moment. Yeah. That's yeah. not what I'm, I'm yeah. just I'm just saying I don't get the stakes. If if the major yeah. stakes is the resistance is on the run and they're mm-hmm. the last hope for whatever it is the force first order governs or rules. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't it was totally abstract and yeah. buried beneath so many other plots and distractions and peripheral things. It seems I I do hope Perhaps this is where you and I would disagree, Jeremy. I do hope that when J.J. Abrams come back, comes back, he'll say, let's simplify. Yeah. Let's just tell a couple, two or three stories really, really well and focus again, as Eli said, on character interactions. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you, by rubbing these things together, you get a little bit of magic going. It, it, the magic was not there. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me if you want to do expanding things, you know, Rogue One, the first hour is pretty dire. I mean, if you think about the the, the destruction of Jeddah, that was totally flat, uh, yeah. things of that nature. But if you remember the first, the first 10, 15 minutes has you hopping between all these other planets. And yeah. you just feel that this is a process of world building, that they're planting flags. Like, yeah. we could come back to these things in other properties, maybe in another movies down the line, mm-hmm. find a nice balance between the, a more streamlined storytelling where you focus on characters and the sparks between them and world expansion or building in the major vehicle, which is your movies. I just feel like uh, The Last Jedi really tried to just do too much at once and none of it really benefited. Well, I, I agree partially. And the thing that I'll say is I think of all the stories we follow after three viewings, I, the weakest is the ones that happen uh, on the cruiser. Like With this. Poe. Yeah. Cause, I mean, and the like, Poe Rebellion is, is I mean, I ugh. actually did yell out. Uh, <laughs> I, I was the only one in the theater, but I actually did yell out. What in the world is happening here? Yeah. It, just, <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of happens like I, twice. Yeah, at least. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, and, and I think that – and I don't know I, – I, I would love to talk with Ryan Johnson about what happened there because it for a moment – and so like – and you want to know about General Haldo, you got to read Leia Princess Valderon because we don't – there's nothing yeah. else we get about her except she's, she's a major character in that book. Um, but we don't know about her from the movie. And there's like – well, there's – I'll say one, po- one negative thing and one positive thing. The negative thing is um, I don't – if Ryan Johnson was going for some manner of like – feminist bent or something it it doesn't quite get there Mm. and i i would have loved to have seen like people stunning poe dameron as a running gag or like him getting smacked in the face or something because like he gets demoted he gets like put in his place by admiral haldo and yet he still establishes he still like has a mutiny and that's the part that i don't like Mm. like in, in my like rewriting in my head Admiral Haldo, who is a shrewd and, you know, sort of crazy general, sizes Poe Dameron up the first time he accosts her and, like, stuns him or punches him and puts him in the brig, and that's the end of that, right? That's the end of it, yeah. Yeah, and because that's, like, I know that's going to happen, and yeah. she's smarter than I am. And so, and and because it, there's too many things in half measure in those interactions that I don't care about going back to looking at them. I, I really like the long-term shooting. I think the way it bounces off the shields is great. I really like that that sound. It's really good. Um, 
but all that talk is nonsense. And we, we haven't even talked about the Leia coming back from space thing yeah. too much. Um, but the positive thing I'll say... For Peter Pan? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mary Poppins, I think. Oh. Um, Thanks, Rick. <laughs> this is from a other web thing. The, the positive thing I'll say is there is this, right? Throughout the film, Admiral Haldo doesn't tell Poe the plan and she doesn't tell us the plan, mm-hmm. right? And so in that, there's this part as like a, from a, a feminist perspective where I recognize that the, the, the gaze of society is traditionally male, that as she is withholding this information from the viewer, she's withholding that from like an inquisitive male <laughs> perspective. And the audience is like, we demand to fucking know this shit. Just like Poe, he demands to fucking know this shit. But she doesn't need to tell us. And I feel that like with an audience which is certainly changing in modern times, but it classically was predominantly male, um, her withholding that information from the audience is part of this, um, is part of the f- like the, the the feminist statement the that story, that um, scene is trying to make. It's just a little too clumsy, yeah. and I, I think that and because at the end I'm like, man, I wanted to know that plan. If she would have just told us that plan, but that's also like, <laughs> why does like. I mean, like, because, because, I mean, immediately, like, I do my, like, feminist rereading, I'm like, there are plenty of times when powerful male characters are introduced to films, have a secret plan, and they don't tell the audience, and the reveal of it demonstrates their brilliance, Mm -hmm. right? So for me to be like, oh, she should tell me, is like, well, just check yourself a little bit. Um, And so, again, like, if, uh, I hear what you're saying about having uh, fewer threads, Um, for me, like, even in The Last Jedi, I didn't, like... I didn't need that thread of the main stuff on the ships. I, yeah. I, I could have spent all the entire time gallivanting around the universe w- with the other people. I didn't need to have, you know, Admiral Hux shelling them every 15 minutes to bring me back to the central thing that we're doing. I'm just going to take it on faith. I'm like, well, that- and that was supposed to be, as far as the script is structured, it's supposed to be a central point of tension. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. are they, the question is, are they going to survive the pounding? Yeah. I mean, since when does Star Wars work this way anyway? Correct me if I'm wrong, but when do she, how does shield, I've never seen a shield like this, aside from the one surrounding the Death Star and uh, Return of the Jedi, that lasts that long or can sustain that kind of pounding. But I'll set that aside. Well, I, I mean, could, yeah, I mean, also something. the, that they can just barely outrun them. Just seems very on Star Wars. I mean, they make and lots of getting... points that try to tell you that's what's happening. In every other instance, it's like we have some ship we can send out to catch you, you know, or whatever. If you're right there, exactly. And and the whole idea with uh, that Hux's plan was to wait for them to run out of gas. Right. I mean that that just doesn't sound like a terribly exciting thing, and it didn't work <laughs> out that way at all. No. Right. Uh, but you know, right. So I could have done away with that as well. I think though, Jeremy, I agree on the point. And I think I've agreed with this multiple times throughout our discussion here. I like some of the premises that they had. Yeah. It was the execution. So the yeah. idea that Poe is going to go through this series of learning uh, lessons or obstacles, and he's dealing with women of authority, because it's not just Haldo, it's of course Leia later yeah. on, who seems to be taking him on under her wing and is going to teach him and he's going to become a major general or whatever it is. If he doesn't already, correct me if I'm wrong there. I may have flubbed that one. But he. this sounds like a good premise for a character yeah. from a feminist perspective, right? You have two female uh, people, characters of authority, and they're going to they're gonna teach this, this hot-headed, 
uh, hyper-masculine, good-looking character. This is the way it's going to happen, and you're going to learn our way to think about these things. That's great. It was the execution. Yeah. Much like Rose, it was the execution, and so on down the line. Yeah, I mean, for however much they're sort of promoting it in the marketing, like Poe Dameron has never paid off as like that interesting <laughs> of a character, or like that he's that important as like a good pilot. You know, like he's sort of the Han Solo character, but not very interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, and and I I love his role at the beginning. Yeah, with the like. I mean, it's like, funny. that's yeah, great. And, that. and I know that, the, I mean, I've heard a lot of um, uh, commentary to say that, like, the the new the Last Jedi is too funny. I am not of that opinion. And yeah, may, I, maybe it's because I had to sit through Jar Jar Binks like everyone else. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, there was a lightheartedness to it that also, I think, in a, in a practical sense, exposed the, like, fact that that's about all they have. Yeah. Like, all they have is a trick up their sleeve. Right. Um, the only thing I would say about that, I don't, I'm not really, didn't enjoy it, but it sort of undercut certain more like emotional moments to me with Luke and Ray say or something. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that I didn't like those as individual things, but overall there was too many moments where like, here's something emotional that I'm feeling or serious. Hey, here's something funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I just and I didn't I, think it needed that. I, I, I got to make the it's like the Ewok point, like yeah. you know, tradition. Like there was the, the the story that like originally the the battle is going to take place on Kashyyyk, mm. or you know, it's going to be like the the Wookies helping them is good, very serious. Yeah, and we had these funny, you know, like Ewoks instead. Right, and some people love them, like me. <laughs> um, and other people want you know, like oh, it's totally serious and totally ridiculous and and funny, and yeah. and like. There's something I don't about. Mind the, I don't mind them at all. In fact, I enjoy Ewok Battle for Endor. I I yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I think, and but I think that there, there's a way in which the Star Wars universe has always had this element of silliness to it mm-hmm. that over time we just integrate. Like Jabba's palace is in one part scary and in one part absolutely ridiculous. Right. You know, like it's some it's very abs- funny right. Characters but we nature, yeah. we just sort of take it as how this world goes. Um, and I I don't know. Like I. The, the thing like the thing with Hux and Snoke at the beginning, mm-hmm. like it's funny, but it's also tremendously degrading to him. Right, and I think it works fine. That was the point. Yeah. But, well, I guess we should wrap up here. Yeah. Um. I mean, one thing I would sort of mention, and there's actually all these little other points in the film or in the series that I'd like to parse out with you guys, but I think these sort of conversations are just like happening everywhere mm-hmm. um, these days. And it, it, the audience is growing all the time. There's much more of an audience than I ever knew as a result of, you know, Disney taking over and becoming this prominent thing again. I didn't realize how many fans there are out there in this conversation. I mean, do you guys think that's because it's becoming... Disney is sort of mainstreaming this more? Or... Do you think it is like our sort of modern mythology that we can all sort of, like you said, Jeremy, like you can look at any of these different media forms, comics, books, video games, whatever, and kind of draw your own sort of story or your version of it that you enjoy. Do you think that's sort of the popularity widespread, why people love talking about it and working through these things? Or is it just such a rich world? Well, there's a lot there. I mean, I'll I'll say one thing and then I'll turn over to Colin. The thing that I, the thing that I'll say briefly is, um, there was a time when Disney created the American media icons. 
in in their films, in Disney World, um, in a lot of what they did. Mm -hmm. Um, And as time went on, they that changed. Yeah. Um, And they, you know, you guys probably remember the old TV ads like "We've opened up the vault. You can now buy a Little Mermaid (laughs) on VHS." Yeah. You know, and eventually they turned into people that could only sell. Um, great things that they already had. And I, and I imagine that there was someone at Disney that said, okay, we succeeded when we controlled, you know, the, the, the most iconic, you know, mm-hmm. intellectual property in America. Let's buy that all again. Right. right? And so they go after, like, you know, Marvel. And I mean, and I don't know if they were pursuing, I don't know what their history of pursuing Lucas, you know, films were mm-hmm. beforehand. Um, but they now own the vast majority of of things that are part of people's like modern like media consciousness, right? Um, and I think that um, well, I mean, there's two things. I mean, I think that um, they are certainly the Force Awakens is a film that I'm sure they workshopped the crap out of that, and that is designed yeah. to appeal to the widest possible audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different film than A New Hope, right? And and because there was nothing, there wasn't much like A New Hope before in terms of... I know it's integrating with a lot of different elements and there are other things that are precursors, but when most U.S. audiences saw that, there was nothing they had seen like that before. That Mm -hmm. is not the case anymore. Right. And I think that... um, I mean, to be honest, like Disney's doing a mediocre job with these intellectual properties, (laughs) but if these were the only things that existed, I don't think they would be as successful as they were. Mm -hmm. Like if A Force Awakens came out of nowhere... Right. You know, it would be okay, but yeah. it wouldn't be the greatest. You know, it wouldn't have the you know, that that top spot in grossing. Stuff. Doesn't have that built-in. History. Um, the second thing is, and I, I, I'm always sort of, you know, because we're fans. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there is, um, certainly in the original trilogy, there's something compelling about those Jungian psychological archetypes that that you can identify with, that you can follow the hero's journey that Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell outlines, and that's that's compelling, sort of almost anywhere. Right. Um, and I think that there, there's a lot of that, though these psychological and social archetypes that exist in the new films that allow you know a, a national and an international audience to really identify with these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, and I mean, I think Colin studies this a lot more than me. But there's there's a sense in our modern world that like these characters from Star Wars, like my son did not grow up in a world without them. Mm-hmm. Like they were around when he was born. Right. Um, that. They take the place. They, they take. They're in the same category as like Santa Claus and Jesus and yeah. Abraham Lincoln and all these other characters, even though they're fictional. I mean, I don't not remember Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't see the films in the theater, but I don't. But yeah. they were already a part of culture um, at that point that I already just and, don't and, remember and, a starting point. Yeah. And as like a fist in the air like artist, I'm like, yeah. how can how can anyone own this? Like <laughs> right? how can how can a person own yeah. Santa Claus effectively? Right. You know, like because yeah. I mean, like Yoda is like that kind of character. You know, like yeah. and, and and is you know the amount of tattoos and T-shirts on which he appears, and the amount of his phrases that motivate people's lives in real ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of shows. That. And I think that was part of the struggle for George Lucas with the prequels and sort of the backlash yeah. is he said like, this is my thing. I'm telling this story, 
but all the fans were saying, no, this is what we want it yeah. to look like. This is where we want it to go. And, and he had trouble the, handling the it. The last thing I'll yeah. say before I turn over to Colin is uh, I mention this all the time, but I think one of the greatest things that Peter Jackson did when he made the Lord of the Rings trilogy was establishing this website before and called the OneRing.net, yeah. in which he integrated you know, the thoughts and ideas of, of hundreds of thousands of people who grew up writing about, drawing about, making films about, and loving these mm-hmm. books. And that's why I think those films were so tremendously good and satisfying because he he certainly has his directorial vision in them. Right. But there is, I mean, it, it is something that I've, like, as a fan, mm-hmm. I've never felt that level of community involvement in terms of the actual right. quality and of the And then he did the same thing with The Hobbit. That involved... Yeah, no, that's... We... <laughs> horrible yeah okay so we're gonna make a bunch of boiling gold and the dragon's gonna jump out of the gold um so yes back to you colin <laughs> um i don't know if i have a as grand a response i i uh, <laughs> i think i think the your question eli was about ex- explaining its appeal yeah uh, it seems to me that star wars if i was to explain it uh achieves a very delicate balancing act and that balancing act is uh, finding a, a finding just the right ways to appeal to different generations, and specifically, of course, finding a way to renew their appeal to kids over time. If they flop with that, this is over. Yeah, I mean, if they true. if they don't, if somehow you imagine a situation where where young boys and now young girls don't want Star Wars products at Christmas time. Uh, then you then you just wonder what the future of this franchise is. They have to renew that. Hmm. So th- there's the balancing act of continuing to appeal to them and trying to build a larger and larger base of loyalists. And I think that, that th- both of those things are things that this franchise has done successfully, and I think Disney recognizes this. Hmm. And that's what they're trying to do. So on the building the loyalists point, and, and not just appealing to the Star Wars loyalists, because I actually think that they don't, on some level, care what the longtime fans, the, the narrow base of longtime fans want. I think they want to bring them on board. I think they would prefer to have them on board. But I think they would prefer to change that base of loyalists, if, if you like. And I think that's what they've done by erasing the expanded universe and all those things. They've essentially pressed reset. They said, we're going to now govern all of these products. And to build that fan, that new kind of loyalist base, borrowing from the previous loyalist base and expanding it outward, they are trying to tell, it seems to me so far in, in ways that have a mixed success, good stories around these characters. Mm-hmm. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to expand these good stories to include different types of characters, gender, race, and so on, that they this universe has never been open to before. Mm-hmm. But they also they're also feeding in to, to create that broader and broader base of loyalists. They're also trying to there's a how should what should I call it? There's a nerdification of, of popular culture going on in yeah, this sense. Yeah. That people like this idea of having a vast encyclopedic thing to encounter and having to master. Mm-hmm. So that you have all of these entry points. Like, I think people now want this. They don't just want a movie anymore. They do want that. And they want the movies to tell good stories. But they want those good stories to have other access points that they can be the first to encounter. They can then, you know, share it with friends and become the access point person or gatekeeper. 
They want that kind of stuff. So I think, how do you explain the appeal? It's that balancing act, but then also expanding that base of loyalists through this encyclopedic expansion of this universe. I mean, now there's all this question. I can't remember what it's called, the Star Wars universe, this unknown regions. The Snoke is from it. I think that the the Star Wars uh, land at Disney World is going to be, mm. be set there. So they're, I think is they the want the Outer that, Rim that you're talking about? Yeah, uh, is it the, it's beyond, I don't think it's the Outer Rim. I think it's oh, beyond okay. that. Beyond that, okay. Uh, and I could be wrong, though. I mean, we, all we have to do is look up those maps. <laughs> I, think that they, I think that that's the, the way to explain that success. If they can continue to tell good stories, multiplied over multiple media like this, build the, fan of the loyalist base, but keep kids there, that's how you explain it. How do you explain why kids are interested? That's out in the realm of psychology, and I'm not a psychologist. Uh, you could go to Jung, you could go to a few others. Uh, I can tell you little boys and little girls these days just like wielding swords and smashing them against things. I think that, <laughs> that that's one thing. But anyway, to stand back even broader than that, we are in the midst, it seems to me, to make perhaps a grand statement. I tried to avoid it, but um, of a, there's been no company, media production company, quite of the size and expansiveness and power of Disney. This is, uh, this is almost unprecedented. And about to get bigger with Fox. Well, there you go, and yeah. that's where I'm headed. Yeah. Disney's experiment with Star Wars and with Marvel to a certain extent, this yeah. is kind of a template. We're gonna see, it's important to watch all this. How do they sustain the appeal? How do they alter how they sustain appeal? to Star Wars, because then they're going to try to do it with the expanded, obviously, Marvel thing, because they own Deadpool, they own X-Men, they own Fantastic Four now, they have Avatar, they, they now own Die Hard, Planet of the Apes, Predator, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So who knows where these things go, but I think to watch Star Wars is to watch Disney grow and potentially go through some growing pains creatively. Right. Um, but they're... In that sense, the question of Disney's appeal and Star Wars's appeal is really important to Disney. Uh, just the uh, last just... couple of comments, kind of what you're talking about and bringing that to kids. I thought it was interesting. My son, who's about to turn nine, uh, after watching this film, I was asking him what he thought. And one of the comments was that he felt uh, these new Disney films are sort of more violent and sort of more crazy than the old films. And I think that was sort <laughs> of a negative for him. That maybe they just don't feel as childlike in some ways, even though there's like a humor to it. He feels sort of like the modern sort of energy that they're bringing to them, um, I guess. And certainly Rogue One, which he saw, is a sort of darker, bleaker film where everybody dies. So that, that could be something to take. But I think that could be something to say for it. And maybe bring some of the humor in The Last Jedi has helped with that. Um, there's also a great article at slashfilm.com called The Last Jedi Doesn't Care What You Think About Star Wars. And mm-hmm. that's why it's great. So maybe not all of us would agree with that. And then my last theory is that if you've heard, there's going to be a live action TV show. And I think Disney is planning to use that as motivation for their streaming service. If you've heard about that, that they're going to, um, you know, they're pulling a lot of their content um, to start their own streaming service. And it sounds like it's coming out around the same time as this um, 
new service. So I'm guessing, you know, why all these Star Wars fans, you would have to have the streaming service to see this live action TV show. So, I mean, I, I think it's certainly, we know they're not doing it for our love of Star Wars, but as a marketing ploy. But uh, like you said, Colin, I think it'll be interesting to see how this continues to develop for them. Uh, the Han Solo movie, which is coming out very shortly, um, will be another indicator of, you know, something that quickly on the tales of a Star Wars film and the uniqueness of the production, how things will go with that. I do. There's like, oh, I, get one, I feel like one more thing I want to say. All it's, it's, it's tangential related. There's one, every time we talk about the Han Solo movie, yeah. I just have to say what I want is a young Obi-Wan movie. I, I want to like see his romance with Satine. I want to see the Death Watch. I want to see all that stuff because yeah. it's so interesting in Clone Wars, and I want more. I just want more. It just makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, it, that, so. it, there's everything's yeah, yeah. there. That yeah. Um, the other thing is like it's kind of like a it's a it's just a, this is just sort of amusing. I mean, or a musing. Um, I went to see the musical Rent last week. Mm-hmm. My wife got me tickets. I had the experience of like feeling old. <laughs> and I don't often feel old, mm. but I remember I was as there was watching Rent, and this musical that like I I, I have everything memorized. I, I've listened to yeah. it hundreds of times. I know all the intonations of all you know, and I. Uh, but I realized it was like such a different time, mm. like you know these yeah. Bohemians. This world, you know, things like you know, I aspired to be like these mm-hmm. folks. Um, it's a, it's just a different world, and and to, and to see these young people try to portray these characters, they were just not really capable of it. <laughs> um, and and, and it, which is not, which is yeah. not just to say like it was a poor performance because some of it was okay, uh-huh. but like I mean, for those in the audience that know, there's um, this dramatic spoken word piece that happens in the mm-hmm. middle of it. And it was played off as as purely comical in this rendition. Huh. And it's like, in the original, it's quirky, but tremendously powerful. It's the high point at the end of the first act. Um, and there are just a few other points where they sort of, they're like people playing what they think people would have been like <laughs> at the time period. And I'm like, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Like, it was before September 11th. The world was very, like, we were having this, like, the, the world was changing due to technology. I mean, it was like a very, very different time. Mm. And so when I think about, when I look at my kids and, and, I, and I wonder, like, like, what appeals to them when they watch Star Wars? Like, what appeals right. to them? Um, and I, I ask them, like, what do you like about it? And some of the things are kind of, I don't know, they feel like universal. Like, we talk about, like, the designs of the ships. Yeah. Or, like, the, the, like the, the way things are made. Mm-hmm. Like, the physical things in the universe um, as I sort of said at the top, have always been, I think, an appeal. Yeah. Like nothing has ever looked like an X-wing, you know. Like mm-hmm. and and it could be anything. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. it could be because they're spaceships in the distant past. They could look like anything. It's a complete yeah. blank slate, and he makes them look awesome. Mm-hmm. And and those those designs that they came up that he and others came up with, you know, what thirty odd years ago or more. Yeah. Dear Lord are still the driving forces in almost all, all the visual elements in the things. Right. Those four-legged the walkers, slightly modified. Stuff, yeah. You know, like even like the, a, the ARC, or the ARC mm-hmm. 70s in Clone Wars, mod- like the early versions of the X-Wing. You know, like yeah. the, head, the T-70, or the, the headhunters. They're all variations on these very artistic mm-hmm. physical designs. Um, and I think that there's, 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 some, there's some appeal that 
that's just there. Mm-hmm. Like for people that have an eye for things that look cool or for yeah. cool machines. True. Um, it's just cool. Because I mean, for, 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 for all, yeah, that's totally no, profound. I mean, for all the like other worlds, like Star Trek, Battlestar Galactic, all the other things, no, nothing is physically as iconic mm-hmm. um, as the Star Wars things. And I mean, for me, like, yeah, one of the things that, I, I, like, when I watched the original Star Wars, one of the things that always stuck me was like the weight of Han Solo's blaster. When he takes it out of his holster to shoot Greedo, yeah. there's something about that moment because it, it seems like it's actually made of metal. Mm-hmm. It seems like this fantastical world is real, mm-hmm. and and that's something that when 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 my kids like do pretend play and stuff around home, they like they it's it's a different kind of fantastic play than just magic stuff or whatever because like <laughs> right. it has rules you know right, and it yeah, has yeah. physical things in it um and i think regardless of what they do with story and i totally agree with Kong about the stories there's some element about the star wars franchise that is about like the the, the physical design of the stuff mm-hmm. um that is that is just appealing and they and they kind of can't screw that up like you can yeah. make a bad film and there's certainly been bad video games <laughs> that look amazing they're uh-huh. like a pain in the butt to play and they're not fun, but they have awesome design things. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, if you're watching a film, I mean, there's mm-hmm. – you're watching physical stuff in physical space. And if mm-hmm. that physical stuff is awesome and the physical space it is in is awesome, it's hard to not be at least satisfied on some level. Yeah. I mean, I admit like the Star Wars world is cool enough. But if there is, like, bad pieces in within that... Christmas special? Yeah, well, maybe not the Christmas special. But, like, it's still almost Oh, no, the worth... animated parts of the Christmas special are great. <laughs> oh, the animated is great. Like but, yeah, even that, like, the design is cool enough that I'm like, I don't know, I still enjoy it to some degree because it still is in that world with those pieces, those elements that I enjoy yeah. and appreciate. And I guess part of my point about Rent, too, was, like, when I saw the original Star Wars movies, they... and they didn't seem to be at all about a time period. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know like folks have talked about the analysis of like, you know, that, that Luke represents like an individual, like a young person who's deposing these, in this older generation of individuals. And that was a particular like social anxiety at the time mm-hmm. that is totally lost on me. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that there's, there's a universalness about the story and the world mm-hmm. um, that persists even into the new ones. Yeah. I think that by the way, was lost on George Lucas too. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the if since we're making a wish list of sorts, uh, yes, yes. I I would say I would give you your Obi Wan young Obi Wan movie if we got our Ahsoka standalone. Oh yes, oh, I mean, Jeremy's and I would gladly that. take the Ahsoka one over young Obi Wan. I just know that it's, the Ahsoka one's probably never going to happen. It's one of the great crimes. I just don't understand. Oh, as oh. much as I twist people's arms to try to get them to watch Clone Wars and oh. or Rebels yeah. just for Ahsoka. She's the best character in all yeah. of Star Wars. <laughs> she's the best. She's certainly the best female that, character of of, female. of Star yeah. Wars. No doubt yeah. about it. Just don't understand how even Leia is remotely in the same league. Don't understand it. But um, there we go. Uh, that's that's number one on the wish list. Indeed. Nice. Well, yeah, I think as you can see, we don't want to stop talking about this, but we'll <laughs> leave it there for tonight. And uh, thanks for joining us, Colin. Yeah. My pleasure, um, anytime. Uh, again, do you write anywhere or anything you want to mention that people can find out more uh, about what you're doing? Uh, I have a, a very modest blog called Moving Patterns. You can just Google okay. that, uh, where some of my opinions on 
the Force Awak- Force Awakens and Last Jedi is ve- are available. Okay. And other than that, I'm an academic, so I mainly write academic stuff. You can just Google okay. me and find my <laughs> academia.edu page if you're curious about any of that. One more thing, I mean, I'm currently writing a book on James Bond, mm-hmm. and uh, some of these questions about franchises and how these they work will very much be a part of that. Okay, cool. Looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.